Okay, so here's what I want to talk about. I want to talk about celebration. Um, God is the author of parties. Did you know that? He's actually the one who invented partying. He's the one who said, you know, my people Israel, I, I just want to make sure you understand that in order to reflect my nature to all the nations around you, they need to be in your presence, in your midst, or looking from outside in, and they need to find happy people, people who are celebrating. People are actually really thankful that they have a Savior. They need to see people who are actually not all the way there yet, but they're in progress, and they're actually enjoying the process. They need to see people celebrating the goodness and the power and the glory of their God. And so what he did, it's interesting here, if you uh, think about books like Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Numbers, and all those Old Testament uh, you know, the first five books of the Bible, you're kind of going, eh, boring. Uh, until you sort of condense a few things all in one spot and you discover things that might be brand new, might be refreshing to you. So I want to take a look at uh, the God of celebration. All right, so here, here's an interesting uh, section. Leviticus 23 is, is the one spot where God commanded the Israelites to do all of the celebrating for the entire year in one spot, one chapter, one book. So I've condensed, I've taken a lot of the stuff out and just condensed it down to the seven things. It says, the Lord said to Moses, speak to the Israelites and say to them, these are my appointed festivals, the appointed festivals of the Lord, which you are to proclaim as sacred assemblies. So God is saying, look, man, this is going to be a festival and it's going to be the best of all. This is going to be a feast, and it's going to be the least thing you would ever want to miss. It's going to be awesome. I want you to celebrate. And so he begins listing them, and he says, let's just start with one day a week. I want the Sabbath to be celebrated. Work for six days, but rest on the seventh. I want every seventh day to be there where you go, ah, gosh, that was a good week. Man, were we productive. Boy, were we able to glorify God. We made some money. We even had some time with our children and our relatives and our friends and our neighbors. Ah, that was good. Thank you, Lord. And then he went on. The Passover and the festival of unleavened bread. He said, eat unleavened bread for seven days and do no work on the seventh. Well, of course, the Passover is a little more serious. They're remembering that the angel of death passed over them. All of the firstborn sons of the Egyptians were killed. The Israelite sons were overpassed, and they stayed alive. That was kind of a solemn thing to remember. But at the end, do no work again. I want you to just go, ah, on the seventh day, gosh, you were so kind to us, Lord. You were so good to us. It was a scary time in our history, but boy, we were rescued. We were saved from that. Then he goes on, the offering of the first fruits. It's the end of the harvest season. Bring the priest a sheaf of the first grain you harvest. But then after you give just the first grain to the priest so the priest could stay alive, that's what Adrian was saying, the temple had to continue, needed workers, and they had to pay rent, and they had to eat food and clean it up and everything else. But after you give them the first part, the rest is yours. Celebrate, woo-hoo, thank you, Lord, fruitful harvest. And then he said, there's another one, the festival of weeks. Count off 50 days up to the day after the seventh Sabbath, and then present an offering of new grain to the Lord. When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Leave them for the poor and for the foreigner residing among you. I am the Lord your God. In other words, after you bring the harvest in, count 50 days and celebrate again. Celebrate again. The fact that you not only have enough for your families, 
but you have enough to leave some there for the poor. You're going to have an overabundance of provision, time to celebrate and go, oh, God, thank you. You're so gracious and so kind to us. You bring the early and the late rains. You do it all, Lord. You take, take such good care of us. Then there's the festival of trumpets. The Lord said to Moses, say to the Israelites, on the first day of the seventh month, you're to have a day of Sabbath rest. Oh, more rest. Thank you, God. This feels so good. A sacred assembly commemorated with trumpet blasts. Do no regular work, but present a food offering to the Lord. And again, every time, nearly every time there was a food offering presented to the Lord, it could be roasted grain or it could be a sacrificed animal on the altar and burnt. That was just a one-time deal. They got to eat the rest of it. They would offer a portion to the priest or one animal, but the entire community got to barbecue the next one. It was a festival. It was a feast. So what's fascinating to me is that this is not optional in God's opinion. Celebrating, feasting, gathering together, partying for his glory, to give him thanks, to make the nations around you jealous of what you have when you submit and surrender to him was the whole point of the festivals and the feasts. God loves a good party. And the final one, the Day of Atonement. You shall do no work at... I'm getting kind of tired of not working. No, I'm actually not. I can't wait to not work, at least officially. This is to be a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. Wherever you live, it is a day of Sabbath rest for you, and you must deny yourselves. And that self-denial was... Uh, Fasting for 25 hours. It was uh, from sundown to sundown on the Day of Atonement. Yom Kippur is what we call it today. It's in September. And um, the Jews would go without food. And the Day of Atonement was a time of contrition, confession. And they were just having to be honest. Lord, my life hasn't been perfect. I've got to tell you that's true. Would you please forgive me? And then they would break their fast with, guess what? A feast. Another feast. And so even though this is a solemn and somber, in fact, the Jews today call it the holiest day of the year, which I find kind of fascinating because um, days can't be holy. Only people can. It's kind of like saying, I have a Christian business. Businesses can't be Christian. Only people can. So the Jews today, I mean, they, I understand it's a solemn time to really, you know, come clean with God and, and uh, ask for forgiveness. Um, but the truth is, if you only do that one day a year, how is that helpful? You know, shouldn't every day be treated as if it's a day of atonement? And for Christians, of course, it's just saying, Lord Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for me. Today, again, I need to be made clean. Nevertheless, it was broken with a fast at the end of that 25 hours, and they all celebrated. There was one last one, the Festival of Tabernacles. So beginning with the 15th day of the seventh month, after you have gathered the crops of the land, celebrate the festival to the Lord for seven days. The first day is a day of Sabbath rest. Oh, so tired of being tired. And the eighth day also is a day of Sabbath rest. Oh, and rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. Are you getting the picture? If you don't really see all these things in concert with one another, you miss the fact that God loves a good party among his people who understand the source of their blessing, the source of their goodness, the productivity, the, the provision, and everything. God loves a good party. Um, if there's seven festivals that he ordained 
That means there's one about every two months. A little bit more than a festival every two months. How many parties do you go to a year? How many parties do you actually go to a year? Anybody want to throw out a number? Anybody go to like seven parties? How about five? Yeah. I, about seven. About seven? Ooh, you're living large, man. I think I go to about two. You know, there's a Christmas party, and then there's, oh, there's a birthday party, sure. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I forgot about birthdays. Forget that. That's like 28 a year. <laughs> but my point is we, as Christians, often don't understand the value of celebrating the goodness of God, and, and we don't do it enough, and we have kind of sour expressions on our face so that the, quote, nations or neighbors looking in on our lives kind of going, who would want that? This is one of the reasons we've established game nights, because we just want to learn to have fun together, because we're not very good at it. And we want people to be able to see us having fun without being religious, and give them a place to come. And sure, these are in the church building, but they're not religious services, that's for sure. I don't know one thing about bingo that will redeem you. <laughs> just not gonna happen. But what it will do is perhaps redeem a relationship with someone you don't know very well. And from there can be a, a germination of a relationship with Christ. I want us to be people who um, recognize, especially because we've got a lot of older generation Christians in this congregation. We've got, praise God, did you see all the kids up here? Yeah. Woohoo! that was awesome. And our, our nursery is booming. We're having babies left and right. I'm not personally, but we are. And, uh, and Sunday school is doing great out there. They have 30 kids sometimes on a Sunday. Um, but a lot of us are, are just kind of, you know, we're kind of on our waning years. And we got to figure out what is our role in the church. We can't put everything on the shoulders of the young or the staff. we got to figure out what's our role. And, and I just want to say to you, you got to learn how to throw a good party and invite people into your life and just have some fun and begin to build relationships because they're never going to meet your Savior until they actually meet you. I mean, God will sovereignly, I take that back, God will sovereignly draw people. He's done that throughout this room. People who are just like out of the blue. They're in the forest and boom, God spoke to them. But we need to be people who are willing to say, I'm going to just bring people into my home. Imperfect, unfinished as I might be or my home is, that's something I must must do. So that was, that was Israel's mandate. That was about 1400 BC when uh, Moses was given the law. About 1400 years before Christ, these things were written down. And by 700 BC, Isaiah the prophet is hearing some things from God. And he's saying, okay, Lord, your people have been doing this celebration, festival, feasting thing for 700 years, and they're not doing a great job at it. Isaiah had to say, you know what? God actually hates your parties. He, he hates them. Why is that? So let's take a look. God was not happy when our celebrations are insincere. So here's what Isaiah was observing and what God was speaking through him about these festivals. It says, Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths, and convocations, I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. Your new moon feasts and your appointed festivals, I hate with all my being. 
He goes on to say, they've become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I'm not listening. Now, you may have heard or read things like this in the past, and you kind of assume, well, what God hates is all of their holy prayer, churchy stuff wasn't sincere. But that's not it at all. He's talking about the festivals, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the parties. Those are the things that were bothering him so much because they had moved away from the whole purpose, and that was to celebrate the one who was the life of the party. It's supposed to be celebrating God. And it wasn't supposed to just happen on certain appointed times. It was supposed to be happening throughout the year so that every day should have been a celebration of the nature and goodness of God. And so what he's saying is, I, I hate him because you're telling the nations around you lies about me. You treat me like I'm difficult, like I'm tough, like I'm mean, I'm not nice, and I'm stingy, and, and now you're getting all self-consumed and you celebrate for the only purpose of celebrating yourself and just kind of enjoying whatever it is you do down there on earth, but you've cut me out. Could you imagine if, um, let's say you're going to throw a party and um, invitations went out, decorations are all hung, food is cooked, you know, people start arriving, there's a buzz in the room, and suddenly God comes in and he goes, I hate this. I just hate this. Would that just break your heart or what? So we have to ask her a question, why? Why would God feel that way about things that you and I do, supposedly for his glory? I think one of the things we've missed is um, the joy of the Lord. Rejoicing in him at all times. Again, I say rejoice. And a pure joy, not getting drunk and gluttonously feeding ourselves like, you know, to death. But rather just going, God, you're the source. You're my supply. You are every reason and everything I have that is good. And I want to get together with my fellow neighbors, my brothers, my sisters, my friends who don't yet know my best friend. And I just want to celebrate your goodness. And I want that to be easy and normal and casual and common. I think that's one of the things that in these last days will attract those who are outside the kingdom, to perhaps want to consider coming in. Um, there's a little buzz out there on the news. I don't know if you watch political news very often, but one of the common um, comments that I've heard is, um, there are certain people on this side of the political spectrum that are just mad all the time. They don't know how to laugh. Nothing is ever a joke. Everything is serious. The world is ending, and they're throwing their hands up, and everything is just all just scary. And I'm thinking... I kind of understand why they see that point of view, but if I were an outsider, that wouldn't be very attractive to me. I want to join that group. Yeah, let me learn how to frown, you know? <laughs> but if I saw a group of people who legitimately were intelligent and productive and helpful and kind, generous citizens who knew how to laugh at themselves as well as even the tough times around them, I want to be part of that group. I need to learn how to smile more. So I think Israel failed their job was to be a magnet to the nations, and uh, God says, you really blew it. You really did not do this well. So I want to um, kind of enter into this resurrection season by um, 
having us rethink how we do church. If you think that Sunday morning is the best time to be shaped into the image of Christ, you're probably wrong. The best way to be shaped into the image of Jesus is to be close to another Christian and just hash it out together around the word, knowing enough to be able to paraphrase and have conversation and pray and discuss and ask questions and answers and uh, not have everything figured out. Or it's going to be in a small group, like a one-on-three or one-on-five, or, you know, where there's a facilitator, people just kind of hashing things out like we do in our rooted small, small group studies. Sunday morning really is not the place you're going to be discipled. You're not going to be shaped into the image of Christ by sitting here where the professionals teach. That's just... It's not going to happen. So that's why I'm, I'm challenging you this, this Easter season to go be discipled by doing something disciple-ish. <laughs> you know, like invite people into your life. And do it on your time, in your way, in your specific location, and see what happens. And try to be like Jesus as much as possible while you're around them. But when you're not, hey, join the party. <laughs> I, I really am fascinated when you, when you look at the, uh, what's, it's not the paradox, it's a kind of a conundrum anyway, the two opposite sides, the command that Moses was given about feasting and festivals, and then the, the slamming condemnation of Isaiah, you kind of go, wow, they're just 100 miles from where they should have been. And then you see Jesus comes along. It is so uh, amazing to me that the first Miracle he did was at a party. <laughs> Is that crazy or what? Um, in John 2, uh, the Bible says, On the third day a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. And when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. And nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet, they did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Mm. When God decided to take human form and invade planet Earth, remember he, he lived for 30 years absolutely undercover. Nobody knew who he was. Nobody knew he was the Savior, the Messiah, the Son of God, except maybe Mom remembered that and Joseph I'm sure mom did. But nobody else did. He just lived a, a normal, mundane, everyday life. He worked, he ate, he played. He had brothers and sisters. There was probably a family of six or seven, including sisters. Um, so he just did life. 
And yet we know this, because he was sinless, he lived every single day to the glory of his heavenly Father. Israel didn't get that right. We don't get it right. Jesus got it right. And before this celebration, before this party, before this miracle, he was just doing everything in every part of his life as sacred unto the Lord. When he played, when he worked, when he ate, when he slept, you just have to know that to be true because nothing about him stood out. Nobody said, wow, he's amazing. Except his brothers probably go, Jesus, can you just like mess up once, you know? I'm always feeling guilty around you. But then on this day, I, I find it fascinating that the first miracle God chose to do through his son was at a party. And, and what he did, this is significant, he took the holy things, those urns filled with water, were for what? Ceremonial cleansing. Ceremony. Let's get the ceremony right. And he said, forget the ceremony, let's have a party. Now, this is not some, okay, now we're all going to get into getting drunk. You know, and you can really go overboard with these kind of verses. This is not about, you know, just a, hey, go have as much booze as you want and go get crazy. The Bible says clearly drunkenness is not glorifying to the Lord. It can be an addiction. There's all kinds of things that can go south on us. But one thing did, uh, Jesus did bring is um, he took a joyless, wineless party and made it better. So I'm kind of going, okay, Lord, that's, again, I don't want to draw too much from that on the alcohol side, but as far as um, what you were trying to demonstrate to your people was that you love celebrations. You love it when people get together and glorify you and enjoy one another and your provision. And there's something about a feast, a festival, and a party that I think we need to just kind of capture. I, I grew up in the partying era of the 70s. When we partied, it was dark. It was evil. Yeah, we laughed a lot, but for all the wrong reasons. So it's not that kind of party. I wouldn't want anybody to go to those kind of parties that I used to go to. But what we can do is have holy laughter where something's genuinely funny and clean at the same time, where food is absolutely delicious and we can't get enough and we've got to stop because our belly's aching. And then we go play games and win prizes and follow up with chocolate and ice cream, all to the glory of God. Chocolate and ice cream, how about that, yeah? Oh, ice cream, then the chocolate on top, yeah. I like that. So it's important that we don't miss this. God has, has given us a picture of the original intent was, I want you to, I just want you to, several times a year, I want you to celebrate my goodness. Be together, come together. I mean, there's a side benefit too. Don't you feel good when you've laughed till you cried? Is that therapeutic or what? It doesn't happen very often, but boy, I think the Lord's kind of going, this is actually pretty healthy. You know, laughter does good like a medicine. And so if we would just kind of, kind of get out of our religious stiff suits and sort of learn how to, how to have fun with people and Make sure Jesus is always the life of the party. But do it in a way that's not going to drive your guests away. You know, this guy's freaking me out. And he's just way over the top. I did that. I had a conversation with a friend recently. I was way, pushed way too hard, way too fast. And he let me have it in a public place. And it was not pretty. I learned something from them, pushing way too hard. But we still have a friendship. I apologize, said, you're right. We're meeting again on Tuesday, in fact. 
So Jesus is the Word made flesh. The Word of God made flesh. This is how he lived. And I, I really want to, again, challenge us to um, invite people into our homes. Everybody's got a different threshold for that. Totally get it. Find out what yours is. Invite them to bingo night. Invite them to karaoke night. At least it's not your house, it's our house, and we'll clean up the mess. So. And if you happen to know somebody that you've been doing this with for a year or six months, you've been having them in your home, at your backyard barbecues, you've got a fun relationship, and you feel like, you know, they could probably handle church now. Invite them, of course. But let's do the groundwork first of building friendships being normal people, and just being, being on mission every single day. I want, to, uh, I want to make sure you understand that this whole idea of being on mission with God is really only valuable if you are a child of God. You, you can't be on mission for God if you aren't his son or his daughter. If you haven't been born again, you're just doing more religious work. And I just want to make sure you understand that if you haven't given your heart, your life, your, the control of your life over to Christ, um, then you're probably not yet his child. And if you're unsure about that, you can do it again, and you can say, Jesus, take control. I'm going to follow you. I'm going to be a Jesus follower the rest of my life. The Bible says that qualifies you for heaven. Absolute, total forgiveness, cleansing. God sees you as pure and whiter than snow. And it simply comes after a decision that you make that says, Lord, I'm yours. Take me as I am. Imperfect, unfinished, broken, sinful. Take me as I am. He says, bam. The moment you do that, you are a child of God. You're a child of God. You're in Christ. So I'm not going to ask you to raise a hand right now or come forward to the altar. What I do want to say is um, think deeply about this and examine yourself. See where you're at with God. And if you're not sure, talk to somebody you trust, somebody you know, and say, am I born again? Am I, am I a Christian or not? What is that? And no matter where you are, lying in bed at night or driving in your car on the parking lot called I-5, you can ask Jesus into your heart. You can ask Jesus into your heart. So Heavenly Father, we're so thankful that you um, held a party for every one of us. The moment we came to you, Lord, you said the angels in heaven through a party, every time a single one of us turned and gave our lives to you. We thank you, Lord, that both Old Testament and New Testament show us times where there was just celebration for the purposes of giving you glory and making you attractive to those around us who don't yet know you. Would you give us courage and creativity, Lord, so that every tribe, every tongue, every nation would want to be part of what you're doing here in these last days? And... Uh, Lord, it's going to take energy. It's going to take help from one another. Um, but help us not to fall asleep or grow tired and weary of doing your work. And we look forward to the new friends you're going to help us make and uh, eventually see alongside us when we stand before you face to face on the last day. We thank you for this, Lord, in Jesus' mighty name. Everyone said? Amen. Amen. Praise God. We'll see you next Sunday. All right.